It's been described as a slow-motion genocide, and it's happening right on Australia's doorstep. The situation in West Papua is complex. Land and resources, race and religion, power and poverty, but the end result is brutal in its simplicity. People are suffering, people are dying. And a warning, the details of the human rights abuses we'll be discussing today may be distressing for some listeners. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Hey, it's great to have you on Signs of the Times Radio this week. I'm zooming across the border, the forbidden Victorian border, to Elizabeth Kendall. How are you, Elizabeth? I'm very well. Thank goodness for that, Kent. <laughs> yes, yes. Things are a little scary in Victoria right now. You've you've become the pariah or pariah of of Australia late, lately in some ways. But yeah, we're all very concerned about the rate of COVID infections there. It seems terrible. Yeah, it's not surprising really. Victoria has long been the most radical state in all of Australia. <laughs> so you know, there's a bit of civil disobedience going on, I think, down here and. And it's spreading. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's it's a bit of a worry, and we're we're certainly, you know, our thoughts are, are with you guys, and hope that we see this spike, you know, flattening out mm. soon. Now, Elizabeth, you wear a number of of different hats in, in academia, in research, and uh, I guess journalism. Uh, you could call it. Could you just introduce us to you? Who, who is Elizabeth Kendall? <laughs> well, that's a really long story. Look. <laughs> I'm the, a, a single mum mm-hmm. with four, or a divorced woman, four adult children now. So they're all grown up. So I live alone with my Labrador now in the Dandenong Ranges. It's a very beautiful part of, of uh, Victoria. Like we've got tropical rainforest, subtropical rainforest there. So it's very lovely. Mm. And, mm. I've uh, been there. It, it is beautiful. Beautiful it, tall trees and, and tree ferns. And yeah. oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Lovely, lovely spot. So I'm very happy there. Many years ago when I was really praying, thinking that my opportunities to be involved in Christian ministry were now over, mm-hmm. which was devastating to me because I always envisaged my life being involved in Christian ministry, I was really praying that God would show me what he wanted me to do. And I prayed like that for a number of years, really. It was uh, several years. And then this incident in Upper Egypt just caught my eye. It was a little bit on the news. The Copts, that's the indigenous people of Egypt, mm-hmm. Copts in Sydney had a street march to protest this terrible human rights abuses in Upper Egypt. Right. This was in 1998. Mm-hmm. And they said on the news that over a 1,000 Copts in Upper Egypt in this village had been arrested and tortured. And then they then they just went on with the football or something, the football news, and I thought, what? Yeah, that, that is so big mm. well, why isn't this a bigger story and i couldn't i couldn't work out what had gone on i couldn't find it in the news and this is early days of internet mm. but uh, i managed to god had got me on the hook right mm. and he was reeling me in and uh, i discovered through the international coptic association that some cop cops had been murdered and in order not to have the the perpetrators put on trial because they were Muslim, a Muslim gang. 
they arrested the whole village under emergency laws, all the Christians in the village, mm. and tortured them until wow. until they got someone confessing to the crime. Okay, so because Copts are like, members of the Coptic Orthodox Church. That's yeah. right, yeah. So they're the indigenous people of Egypt. They're the descendants of the pharaohs. Mm-hmm. They were there before the Arabs came in, and mm-hmm. they've remained Christian, but they're only about they're about ten percent of the population. And when I sort of when I realised what had happened to these people, I, it really, you know, God had caught me at that point, and and I realised how can we help these people if we don't even know what's happening to them hmm. and we don't understand what's happening to them, you know. It's just reported as a – it was only on the news because the cops marched through the streets of Sydney and held up the traffic. Wow. And so at that point I thought, no, I ha- I, my, my life will be now devoted to helping people know what's going on with, you know, these really vulnerable peoples and especially to help – the church, the Christian church know what is happening to really severely persecuted Christian minorities in the world, in Pakistan, in India, in, in Egypt and all across the Middle East, uh, Christian groups that are really suffering terribly and we never hear about it. It's not newsworthy. No one cares. So mm-hmm. that, be- that became the ministry that God called me to and that I've been working at for the last 20, more than 20 years. Wow. Okay. So, Elizabeth, you mentioned a couple of places around the world where where Christians are being persecuted now, or have been, you know, persecuted recently. Are these sort of the hot spots, or are there are there particular hot spots right now, or or you know, places where the persecution of Christians has been a persistent issue, you know, in recent years, recent decades? Well, it's escalated across the world in recent decades, and a lot of it. There are lots of reasons for it, and I go into this on my on my website, elizabethkendall.com. I explain some of the global trends that have converged to make religion a really hot issue in the world. Mm. I mean, people in the West think we're becoming post-religious, you know, post-Christian. As we become scientific, you know, we'll give up our religion. But it's actually not true at all. Religion is hotter now than it has been for a long time. Mm. And, and uh, the Christian church is growing extraordinarily in the non-Western world. And at the same time, you've got the rise of Hindu nationalism in India. Mm. You've got this revival of fundamentalist Islam, which is intensely intolerant all through the Muslim world. And then you've got, you know, since the fall of communism in Europe, you've got a real stepping up just in the last decade, really, of communism in communist control in China, where then they're not going to go the way of the Soviet Union. Mm. They are digging in big time. And under Xi Jinping, China is becoming a real serious hotspot for persecution, along with India and Pakistan and right across the Middle East, large tracts of the world. Mm-hmm. I, I guess one question that, you know, some people might be asking themselves as they listen to you, Elizabeth, is why focus specifically on the persecution of Christians? Because there are all kinds of minority groups who are being persecuted for all kinds of reasons. I mean, think of in Sri Lanka, for example, the, you know, the Tamils who, who are traditionally Hindu are often persecuted by the, the Buddhist majority Sinhalese. 
or the the Rohingya in you know Myanmar persecuted by the Buddhist majority Burmese. You know why why Christians in, in particular? I guess and. Uh, because some of these issues, like the Rohingya, are fairly well known, but others are not. I mean, I've, I was reading last week about Burkina Faso, for example, where there are Fulani nomadic herders in Burkina Faso who are being persecuted by the government there, which is actually, I think, the elites are a Christian majority in Burkina Faso, even though the majority of the country is Muslim. And so in that case, it's Muslims being picked on by a, a, a Christian government. It's so complex. There are so many different combinations. So why focus on the persecution of Christians in particular? Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I'll say something about Burkina Faso. The situation in Burkina Faso is arising because of this massive surge of Islamic terrorism in the last maybe two years There's been a real uptick in Islamic terrorism. There are Islamic State groups bunkering Mm -hmm. in in the east. There are Al-Qaeda-linked groups in the north, and they're massacring people, and Mm -hmm. they're massacring mostly Muslims because they're mostly Muslims there. Mm -hmm. There's an Australian missionary still being held captive by Al-Qaeda. He was kidnapped out of Burkina Faso, a missionary doctor. He's been in captivity for about four years now, but... Most of the locals who who get on side with these Islamic terrorists are Fulani. Mm. And what happens in a lot of African countries is the police are not terribly discerning and the police can be often, they perpetrate a lot of human rights abuses themselves. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they just just go out. And most of the police are not Christians. The presidents are are Christian. Mm. um, The police just go out and they just say, oh, there's Fulani, you know, they're trouble. And the Fulani are suffering because of the trouble that's being brought on their heads by the Islamic terrorism in the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that explains Burkina Faso a bit. But the reason I got interested, I, apart from the fact that I really felt God called me to this, my, to this particular issue, is it becomes very clear when you start looking at it that this is a subject for a long time no one was really talking about, especially the Western media. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of groups that are persecuted, like the Shia are severely persecuted, Shia Muslims, mm-hmm. severely persecuted in Sunni Muslim countries. Mm-hmm. Just like Shia, just like Sunni Muslims are persecuted in Shia Muslim countries. Mm-hmm. It's nearly always a case of the religious minority being persecuted by the majority in these countries that have really poor human rights abuses, mm-hmm. really, really poor human rights standards, right? Yeah. So their names are synonymous with human rights abuse and the, the minority gets persecuted with impunity. And the thing is, as the church, the Christian church is quite unique and that it's not just growing in some regional area, it's growing all over the world mm-hmm. all and all over the non-Western world. So the church is growing at a phenomenal rate in, in China. You know, mm-hmm. when, when the Western missionaries were kicked out in 1950, I think it was, they were pulling their hair out and crying and saying, oh, there's only about a million Christians in China and it's all going to come to an end now because communism's you know, kicked us all out. Now there's about a hundred million Christians in wow. China, wow. and it's because of chi- the Chinese have have evangelized their own country. And, and when when the worst persecution was happening during the Cultural Revolution, and and all their pastors were thrown into coal mines, 
it was women. It was Chinese women who could go under the radar of the police, evangelized all the country, all the rural areas. And then after Tiananmen Square, Christianity became a, an urban phenomenon in China, mm. a means of resisting oppression, you know. So things change. And in so many countries, Christianity is growing, even in the Muslim world. Mm-hmm. All through the history of Muslim-Christian interactions, you do not see Muslims becoming Christians because it's a death sentence. It's a capital offense. It's the penalty for apostasy in Islam is death. Mm-hmm. So, and there are a handful of countries that have actually put that into, into law, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. And in yeah. the ones that haven't, you still don't go to, it's still illegal to murder someone, but you, you don't go to jail if you've killed an apostate. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so the, the impunity allows it to happen. Mm. But the fact of the matter is, all across the Muslim world, Muslims are so disillusioned with Islam that they're not only leaving Islam, many are coming, becoming Christian. In Iran, it's just absolutely phenomenal. There's a great movement of, of Muslims to Christianity in Iran to the point that the regime is very anxious about it and cracking down on it. So, so these sorts of movements mean that Christians are now facing the church is growing in countries where they are going to be persecuted. Mm. And, you know, there, there are, there are Jewish groups that support the Jews. There are Shia groups that support the Shias. There are Baha'i groups that support the Baha'is, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. When I started 20 years ago, there were not a lot of groups supporting Christians. Mm. There mm. were, you know, just a few aid groups that, but really to speak up for Christians who were being persecuted, pretty well almost nobody mm-hmm. and and a lot of that has to do with the western media being so disinterested and this whole western secular idea that we're going to grow out of religion you mm-hmm. know so so what does it matter if all the christians die you know like there's no interest in the media yeah so, yeah, yeah. I, I think i mean i've certainly thought to myself before well christianity is the world's largest you know religion is it what is it about? About a third, a third of the world's population is is Christian or something like that. So, which is you know a large group. But I think there was a report that went to the UK Parliament over the last couple of years. Actually, you know, they did some research. They looked at the statistics, and they actually produced a statistic that suggested about eighty percent, eight zero percent of the world's religious persecution was directed at Christians. That's right. And I thought I thought wow okay so that that is interesting mm. that yes Christians are the are the world's largest religion but it seems on a per capita basis Christians are still easily the most persecuted you know religious group in the world. Yeah and because the thing is in 1960 about 70% of all Christians were white Western and middle class, mm-hmm. sort of just like me, you know, mm-hmm. they look like me. But today, about 80% of all Christians in the world are non-Western, coloured and poor, right? So they're Chinese, they're Indians, they're Africans, they're Latin American, they're even increasingly, they're Persians and, mm-hmm. and, um, and, uh, and Egyptian Arabs and Tunisian Arabs and, so yeah, so the, per- the and these are all Christians that are that are persecuted. They're living in countries where 
The church is growing massively in countries where it's not safe to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they are still a minority, I guess, which is... Yeah, exactly. Fact. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Well, I'd, I'd like to turn to the situation in West Papua, if if we could, Elizabeth, because mm. this is the subject of uh, our cover article for the July magazine, and we thank you so much for for writing that for us because this this is you know as you've been saying so many of these issues do not get media attention this is an issue that is right on australia's doorstep you know this is one of the the closest bits of land to australia is like right there in in west west papua and a lot of us don't even know where it is. So, so give us a little geography lesson if, if you can, you know, do that via, a, you know, a podcast radio method. Paint, paint a picture in our minds. Where is Papua or, or West Papua? Yes, well, it is definitely off the radar and, and there are lots of reasons for that. People don't want to talk about this issue mm-hmm. because the injustice of it is just so shameful. But West or Papua, what I call the Papuan provinces because it's now divided into two provinces, West Papua and Papua. Mm-hmm. It's the land we used to know as Irian Jaya. Mm-hmm. It's the western half of the island of New Guinea. Right. So the western half was colonised by the Dutch and the eastern half was colonised by the British. Mm-hmm. And Missionary Aviation Fellowship actually went in with its aeroplanes only like in about the 1950s and 60s and a land that had never seen a white face before, pretty much the interior, met met with Australian missionaries. So there's Australian missionaries and American missionaries have had a big input and Dutch missionaries earlier on, but mainly on the coast. Mm. So it was mostly Canadians, Americans, Australians who went into the interior and met with tribes that were cannibals and headhunters and endlessly at war with each other and killing each other and mm-hmm. they brought them a whole new way of living th- through relationship with God and it was a put, in, put a, an end to their wars. It brought them peace. It brought them health care and the Christians set up health clinics. They brought them literacy and they've transformed like Papua New Guinea. In yeah. fact, like virtually all the Melanesian uh, islands, the mm. people of West Papua, the Melanesian Papuans are overwhelmingly Christian. I think their census counts them as about 98% Christian. Right, right. Well, is there, I mean, and this is close to my heart, I've got to say, Elizabeth, because I spent a couple of years as a kid, you know, missionary kid growing up in Papua New Guinea. So, yeah, I'm certainly, you know, sort of familiar with that sort of Melanesian culture, mm. the Melanesian mindset and lovely people. I always feel, yep. you know, very much at home there and a very deep spirituality and deep faith and a willingness to live sacrificially. And uh, it's interesting that there's a, a real contrast, I guess, with the cringe that we kind of have in the West when we think of the word missionary and the gratitude that the majority of people mm. in those in those specific island countries will have when they think of those Christian missionaries who came and, as you say, transformed, yeah. you know, what was, a, a, you know, warring battles and violence and, and a lot of fear of, you know, ancestral spirits and stuff like this. So there has been a real positive transformation in a lot of, not that there aren't still problems, of course. So this has been a, a similar thing for, for Papua and, and West Papua, but it's not actually like Papua and West Papua aren't countries. They're, they're provinces of, of Indonesia. Mm. Now, so how, do, how did that happen? Well, that happened, and this is where it gets really sort of messy. So 
after World War Two, when we start to see an end to colonialism and, mm-hmm. and, you know, the colonial period is over and countries, everything, every country from like Nigeria and Iraq, right across the Pacific, all gaining their independence mm-hmm. from their colonial, from their colonial overlords. And of course, the island of New Guinea was divided in half with half of it was colonized by the Dutch, that's Papua, and the other half was colonized by the British, that's Papua New Guinea. And so when it came to decolonization, it happened differently. Mm. And the deal with Indonesia was trying to make making the case that everything that had been under Dutch rule should now be Indonesian. Mm-hmm. And the Dutch were saying, oh, no, that, that would be terrible because part of these lands are Melanesian and Christian, mm. and yet Indonesia is majority Javanese Muslim, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't be right to put the Melanesian Christians under the rule and the domination of Javanese Muslims, and the Dutch fought quite hard for it. Even though the Dutch had quite happily colonised the whole area themselves. <laughs> well, yeah, but and, and, you know, they were seeing real progress too. They were... Mm. They, They'd built schools, they'd built hospitals, they were training Papuans and they were becoming educated. And the Javanese Muslims were a different, a very different people. So they didn't become Christians, mm. right? The headhunters and the cannibals became Christians mm-hmm. and their lives were transformed, but the, the Muslims didn't. So the Dutch were very concerned about, about this. So it goes to the United Nations. And in 1962, they broke the New York Agreement, which was a deal to put Papua, which was soon to be called Irian Jaya, to put that Papuan province of West New Guinea or Dutch New Guinea under Indonesian rule. Now, first it would come under the rule of the United Nations. So they would administer it in the interim. Mm-hmm. And then there would be a referendum. And this is where it becomes even doubly messy. Now, at the time of the New York Agreement, the American representative at the United Nations said, look, it would be terrible just to put all these Melanesian Christians into Indonesia. That would just be trading white colonialism for brown colonialism, is what Mm -hmm. he said. Mm. He said that would be unfair. And a whole group of African nations led by Ghana which is a majority, you know, mostly Christian African country in West Africa, they put together a coalition to say this would be terrible for the, the Melanesian Christians or Papua. It would be Muslim imperialism. Don't allow it. But in the end, America pressed the Dutch to back off because the Americans were afraid that if they didn't curry favour with Indonesia – and they didn't get Indonesia on their side and in their team, then Indonesia would slip into the Soviet sphere of influence, right? Right. This is, this is Cold War It's stuff. a Cold War thing, you see. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, exactly the same game is played today. Indonesia gets away with incredible stuff because, like, the West doesn't want to see Indonesia slip into China's sphere of influence. Right. And, so, and understanding in Australia, Elizabeth Gough Whitlam was the prime minister at the time. And he similarly was unwilling to stand up for, for the Papuans and 
again let Indonesia have its way, basically. Yep. And same with same with the British. They all just backed off yeah. and decided it would be best if we kept Indonesia happy. It was all about keeping Indonesia on the side of the West and and away from the the communists, away from the Soviet sphere of influence. So for geopolitical reasons, primarily, the West Papuans were betrayed really into the hands of a, a Javanese Muslim overlords. Mm-hmm. And this then went to the referendum in 1969. It was called the Act of Free Choice. And we all lampoon it as the act of no choice Mm. because what the Indonesians did was they went around and they selected, it was 1,026 hand-picked Papuans. I don't Mm. even know if they were literate or if they were just, you know, people that the Indonesians had got on side. I don't, we don't really quite understand what was happening there, but they, they got these just over a thousand Papuans. They brought them to a station and they said, tick the box <laughs> uh, with soldiers and officials all around them and they ticked the box and they voted, I think, maybe unanimously mm-hmm. to join the country of Indonesia, to become part of Indonesia. And so the, this is the issue, you see. It, the, there's a sense, a real sense of injustice and even illegality of the way that referendum was done. Mm. And uh, as human rights abuses have just continued decade after decade after decade the cry for this this to be reviewed just gets louder and louder and it's really coming to a head actually at the moment things are becoming a lot more tense and i think it's coming to a head mm-hmm. boy and uh, I, I guess where this gets complicated and, and this is the case with a, a lot of sort of persecution of minorities elizabeth is that when there becomes some sort of separatist movement, particularly where where it becomes an armed insurgency, mm. and there are armed groups in yep. West Papua, in West Papua of you know local in, indigenous Melanesian people who who are prepared to pick up weapons to you know to push for independence. That seems to be when it gets difficult because it becomes hard for the Indonesian military to decide who who is a combatant, who is a peaceful protester, who is just an innocent bystander in in a village and as you were saying with you know Burkina Faso you have a situation where the military or the police you know come through these places and the result is indiscriminate killing all justified by the fact that there are armed insurgents out there there is an armed independence movement does that complicate things the the fact that some um, Papuans have picked up weapons of course it does. Now, the thing to remember, though, is that these are mostly tribal people with more often than not spears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not going, they're not like the Fulani that are being armed by terrorist groups like Boko mm-hmm. Haram. They're not going around with bulletproof vests and AK 47s. They're often wearing virtually nothing and carrying mm. a spear. So Machetes yeah, and spears, yeah. yeah okay. it's, so there's a, a huge power indifference. Mm. And at the root of it all is the appalling human rights abuses. And the trouble is, though, is that if there's any incident at all, it then becomes a pretext for a Indonesian military reprisal. Mm. And heavy-handed, over-the-top. Heavy-handed. And, yeah. tr- and the trouble we have really is that there is so much with the Javanese Muslim Indonesian military, there is so much racial and religious hatred at work that 
any pretext will do. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the most recent uh, violence which took place, which was in uh, December 2018, a group of armed separatists kidnapped 24 workers, Indonesian workers, who may or may not have been Indonesian soldiers, working on the highly controversial Trans-Papuan Highway that is going to tear West Papua to pieces. And they kidnapped them and they executed 19 of them and, mm. and a, few, a few escaped. And, and what the kickback, the blowback against that has been horrendous. So the Indonesian military comes in in force, you know, mm. battalion after battalion and rampages through the central highlands, displacing close to 50,000 Papuan individuals. Mm, mm. Some have died. There's about 50,000 displaced and they've gone. Some are just in the, in the forest and it's pretty difficult to survive in the forest and especially. Very rugged terrain, yep, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. And if you're giving birth and if you're wounded, it's even more difficult. Some have gone over the border into refugee camps in Papua New Guinea and most have gone into the highland town of uh, Wamana where the churches are looking after them in church-built and church-provided for and church-funded displaced people's camps. There's virtually nothing coming from the government, and it's really difficult. So right up here on our doorstep, Mm. we have tens of thousands of people displaced by a military campaign that is deeply corrupted by racial and religious hatred that they see, you know, the Javanese Muslims see the, the West Papuans as infidel monkeys. You know, they call them mm. monkeys and infidels. Yeah, and this, and this, the, the, in the era of Black Lives Matter, this kind of exactly it, it yeah. resonates deeply, doesn't it? I mean, here's here's a people who, as you say, there's an ethnic racial aspect to this. Yep. Well, and now in these camps, even though the church is doing everything it can. Because the region is closed and because Jakarta is not allowing or not sending virtually any aid through at all, we have a situation right on our doorstep where civilians and mothers and children are dying of starvation in displacement camps. Mm. They are dying from wounds, bullet wounds, chemical weapons wounds, chemical burns. They are dying from diarrhea. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and no one talks about it and it doesn't make the news. And of course, the, the region's closed. So you can't get a journalist in there anyway. Mm-hmm. And anyone who talks from inside Papua does so at risk of their life. So it's very difficult. So the group that I work with in Canberra, Christian Faith and Freedom, we've been making this a priority and we've been really pressing Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to really take notice about this, especially the to see if they can at least get agreement from Jakarta to get aid into the displaced Papuans. And we'd like to see the, the Indonesian military withdrawn, which mm-hmm. I can't imagine will happen, but mm-hmm. we'd like to see that. We just we certainly can't go on un, unnoted. There's it's coming to a head and you know, I really fear that in our lifetime we could see the genocide or the mm-hmm. effective genocide of the Christian, Melanesian, Papuans, right on our doorstep. Mm. It, it does seem like it, it's a very difficult and complex issue. I mean, that there's the issue of, you know, the colonialist 
<laughs> you know, sort of legacy. And then there's these like racial, you know, ethnic aspects to it. And I understand, I mean, geographically, that, you know, western half of the island of New Guinea is the largest area of the whole, you know, Indonesian, you know, empire by in terms of square kilometers with a massive big golden copper mine like right there in, in the middle of it. It's, yeah, but, but I, is it really a, a religious, I mean, are there religious aspects to, to this conflict? Is there Christian persecution that's a part of what's going on in Papua? Oh, absolutely, there is. So, so at the core of the, this, it's about money, right? And it's mm. about the fact that Indonesia could barely sustain itself without the riches that are in the ground in Papua. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's not even just the gold and the copper. There's also oil and gas and timber and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I can't remember. It's, it's a large it's a large percentage of Indonesia's wealth comes out of West Papua. Mm-hmm. And the Indonesian military, their salaries are so low, they have to make, make up their own salaries in the businesses that the Indonesian military gets into, same as what happens in Pakistan. Um, so they are deeply invested all across West Papua. They, they are determined not to leave. The Indonesian military gets heaps of wealth out of West Papua. Mm. So it's, at its roots, it's about money. But of course, the fact remains that the colonizing power is mostly Javanese Muslim mm. and that there's a really, really big element of racial hatred and religious hatred involved. So, you know, they don't just shoot at Papuan if he comes across them. They disembowel him, you know, mm-hmm. they torture him to death. You know? And, and, and you can see the footage on, on the internet because they, the Indonesian soldiers film it and laugh at it. And they say, Oh, a silly kafir. And they're pulling out his intestines. And then they stick it up on Facebook to have a laugh. And, mm. and there's impunity because no, nothing ever happens. Nothing, no, no one does anything about it. So, wow, wow. But, and so there's a deep aspect of racial and religious hatred mm. in the violence that mm. is perpetrated for the sake of money. Yeah. yeah. Now, look, there are a number of. I guess groups out there, you know, raising awareness of the situation in, in Papua Elizabeth. I guess my question is, as a, a Christian activist, or perhaps, you know, because there are churches involved too here. I mean, you said there are, there are churches involved in these, you know, displaced people's camps and, and this sort of thing. Should Christians and church groups be joining in the call for independence or is that too political? Should, uh, you know, Christian groups simply be calling for human rights to be respected there? Should we really get involved with the politics? I think what we need to do is to focus on the human rights because that's something that can change. I, I really hope in my heart that one day West Papua will be free of Indonesian colonial rule and that it, and, and, and Indonesian military occupation. I hope in my heart that maybe one day West Papua will be decolonized and mm-hmm. that it may be part of a, like a, an autonomous state on the island of New Guinea mm-hmm. and, and that family of Melanesian nations like Vanuatu and, and they're, they're the strongest supporters for, of West Papua today. Mm-hmm. I would love to see that, but if that's going to happen, it's going to be some time down the track. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, the issue is so politically fraught that it's better probably 
just to keep it in your back pocket sort of thing, mm-hmm. uh, to pray about it and to to dream about it maybe. In, in but, independence, you mean? Yeah, and but I think for, for right now the issue is human rights and that the, the killing and the human rights abuses and the, and the continued Javanese Muslim colonization and Islamization and military occupation of West Papua needs, that needs to change. That whole situation needs to change. Mm-hmm. Well, so that, yeah. Yeah. So what, what, what can we do? I mean, as, as Australians or, you know, I mean, this is, you know, a podcast goes out all over the world. So, Wherever we are in the world, is there anything we can do to to help this situation, to move towards a a positive resolution? Well, the thing I usually always start with is that we need to speak, right? And the Mm -hmm. Bible tells us we should do that. The Bible says clearly speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. And the Bible is just full of calls for justice and righteousness and brotherly love. So we, we just have to speak up. And the thing is, Human rights abusers do all their best work in the dark, you know, mm, when, when, mm. when no one's looking and no one's talking. So if we start talking about this, you know, make this the next barbecue conversation, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and not, not talking about it with our neighbors. If, if we get the opportunity, you know, when it comes up rather than hide it, you know, to be informed as well, to get ourselves informed, to talk about it when it's on the radio. Mm-hmm. Be a caller. Call in and talk about it on the radio. When it's in the new, something's in the newspaper on Indonesia. Write to the let, letters to the editor. Say, put a comment under the article. Mm. Just keep speaking, and that way the issue is not invisible. So that's mm-hmm. really, really important. And then it's important, I believe, as a Christian, to to pray about it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't underestimate that one little bit. I really want to see God intervene for His people here. And the other thing we can do and that everyone can do is write to their local MP. Mm-hmm. So, and, Fe- um, Federal MP, I assume you mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been a trend in the past, back in the days of letters and stamps and everything, where <laughs> pe- people used to write to, say, the foreign minister. And mm-hmm. it had weight because it came because they used to deliver great big sacks of mail. Yeah. It's a little bit different now, and I don't know that that works terribly well. Emails regularly don't get through anyway. They're just filtered out at the desk. But if you can write a letter on, on, with a stamp, do it snail mail and maybe do an email version as well to your local MP who usually is quite pleased to receive some mail and quite pleased to have something to talk about, then you, you, actually, you actually impact the whole party room. If everybody does it, then you can influence the entire party room. And when the subject of Indonesia comes up, you know, there's been an infiltration of the entire party room. You've got MPs right across the party that have all received letters from constituents mm-hmm. who have explained that this really matters to them. You know, the, the Papuans, they helped us during World War II. They carried our wounded. They were on our side. Mm-hmm. You know, and here we are, we've abandoned them to this terrible fate. It's not right. And to express their concern. And well, worse, worse, worse than abandon them, I understand. I understand the uh, Australian government, like, has military links with the Indonesian military and actually provides 
training and and weapons for possibly some of those same uh, soldiers that are occupying Papua. Yeah, that's right. Now, that the whole reasoning behind that, I've had this conversation. I was told that the reason we do that is because if we can train the Indonesians, we can train them in human rights. We can train them, you know, to have better values and be more professional. But I, to be honest, that's just fantasy thinking, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, these soldiers have a different worldview. Mm-hmm. They have a completely different worldview. And military... Uh, your your values don't necessarily rub off. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. going to spread like the coronavirus, you know. Good human human values. You can ju- all you can do really do is give them better weapons, teach mm-hmm. them how to use them really well. Then they'll go straight back and and slaughter a whole village full of Christians. And and the other there's another problem mm. in, in that countries. I don't think Australia is selling arms to Indonesia, but I know that America uh. and Britain do. Right. And, okay. and, and like, I, 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 I'm not sure about that. I just don't know about mm. that. But I, I know that the Australian military trains the Indonesian military. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's definitely true. But I, there was a really terrible incident. In fact, it was one of those incidents when Indonesian soldiers filmed themselves disemboweling this Papuan man. And he's crying out. He's crying out to God. Oh, God, hear the cry of your people. Oh, God. And they're mocking him and they're torturing him with, mm. with some um, cigarette butts and everything. Horrific. And it got, yeah, now the, now the American bill that allows America to sell arms to Indonesia has a clause in it that says that they will not sell to human rights abusers. Oh, wow. So, right. <laughs> so it becomes, so then it becomes an issue. So, they sit down with the Indonesians and the Indonesians say, well, that was just a rogue, rogue police officer and, and we've dealt with him, you know. He's being punished and it won't happen again. And, of course, America does not want to stop selling weapons to Indonesia because they make a lot of money out of it. Yeah, There's yeah. a lot of mo- The arms trade, I tell you, the arms trade is one of the most Wicked, insidious, corrupted things on the face of the earth. Mm, and, that, and that's another thing that gets yep. relatively little attention, isn't it? Exactly. Wow. Look, Elizabeth, you've given us a, a lot to think about, and I, I can certainly absolutely recommend uh, to our listeners that you do check out Elizabeth's website. It is elizabethkendall.com. That's uh, Kendall with one L. It's, uh, yeah, just looking at all sorts of situations all over the world that we really ought to be more informed about. And, uh, and I guess that's the first step, isn't it, to become better informed and then exactly. to, yeah. And it, it can become overwhelming, can't it, to see all this injustice everywhere, to think, well, what can I do? But I guess, you know, we might not be able to fix everything, but we can do one thing for one situation, So, and that's got to be better than nothing. So, yeah, so thanks so much, Elizabeth. I really appreciate the time that, you, that you've given us today, and thanks for writing for us in Signs of the Times as well. And thank you, Kent. And, you know, if everybody throws their little pebble onto the scales... You know, it can it can make a great weight, so it's it's worth pursuing. Wow. Thanks so much. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media.